You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So welcome, listeners, to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. Man, we said that really fast. This is like, I know, quick, quick, quick. That's all right. I'm going to make sure everyone can understand us, especially for those people who listen to us on like double or triple or quadruple speed, because there are platforms that I know at least go up to triple. Why would anybody listen to a speed like that? Well, time. I think if you listen to a lot of podcasts on triple speed, you can listen to three times as many in the amount of time <laughs> that you have. <laughs> so. I can barely understand time and a half. I actually mostly listen to times two and it is exactly for that reason is I just, I listen to so many, it's hard to get through them all if I don't listen to them fast. Yeah. And I spend most of my time listening to podcasts. So all right. I guess when I'm not doing something else, it's not most right. of my like waking hours. It's when I'm like, doing chores and driving and stuff. I live and breathe podcasts. Anyway, sorry, everyone. Welcome to the show. <laughs> this is what we're doing right now. <laughs> so, uh, Shane, do you have pets? I have I mean, I guess it depends on how you define pets. I technically have three, but if you count kids, I have five. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> what non-human pets do you have? <laughs> I have I have three dogs. I have three okay. wonderful, wonderful mush-faced dogs. Nice. <laughs> dogs are awesome. Okay, so how do your dogs communicate with you? So my... <laughs> it looks like one of my dogs likes to smile. Nice. But they all look at me. They all stand in front of us and they follow us around the house. They will uh, like follow us around the house if they need something. But that's my understanding of their communication. I don't know that they or they bark at me. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe growl sometimes. Yeah. That sort of thing. Now, and I'm legitimately curious, do you think that you would be interested and willing to pay for some sort of technology that allowed them to actually speak in like human language in English or something like that? I, I suppose it would have to be English if they, I'm not sure it would be much help if it taught them like Swahili or something. Yeah. I mean, if my dogs were speaking in Mandarin, I don't know that I would find a benefit to that, but if the technology was viable and it was validated and it actually made sense, then yeah, I would love to know what they're thinking and what they're talking about. I definitely have heard people say that they wonder what their pets are thinking about sometimes. And then I also wonder on the same sort of token, if you will, if people would think, you know, maybe I don't actually want to know <laughs> what my <laughs> animals are thinking. They've seen too much. Yeah, there's, <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> We're so shameless in front of our pets and they're secretly <laughs> judging us the whole time. <laughs> But let's just assume that in, in case, like you mentioned, it would actually be really helpful for us to be able to communicate more effectively with our animals. I mean, for one thing, you can think about the fact that if we could simply tell them, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple hours, so I just need you to chill out and then like I'll feed you when I get home. And if you want to watch TV, that's cool. And then have your pets just like do that. And it's totally fine. Or if the pets were like, dude, I really got to go to the bathroom. Will you please let me outside right now rather than just squat down and do it all over the rug? Yeah. So I definitely see some practical utility if that was something that would be an option for people. Now, at one point in time, there were several researchers, and we'll talk about some teams specifically. And we'll just talk about one example where researchers taught a primate, so an ape of some kind, sign language. Now, a question that you might ask, though, is, okay, so if they taught this one primate sign language, do primates just communicate with us now via sign language like can you go to a zoo and just see that these primates these bonobos and chimpanzees and and monkeys and gorillas like they're just talking to each other and talking to us in sign language and if not what happened did they not actually teach that animal sign language like what happened to those primates that they could speak sign language and what happened that they aren't anymore if that makes sense yeah where'd they go so in our discussion today, we're going to be talking about some of these projects that kind of came onto the scene and were developed over the last century or so that were intended to see if we could teach language to these primates, what happened to those primates and what happened to those studies. And we'll also discuss some of the controversies that arose around the scientific community. And one thing that I hadn't originally planned to point out, though, is why they chose primates seems fairly obvious because they're very similar to humans in a lot of ways. Like we all share a common ancestor. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
it does make sense to then try and look at, okay, well, if humans can have language, then maybe all we need to do is create the right environment for these primates to also have language. So that was sort of the idea. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't take a lot of mental stretching to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to pick an animal, you wouldn't like go to a snail and you're like, all right, let's see if we can teach this snail English, right? Because first of all, we don't know if they even make any sounds, but we definitely know that the primates make sounds and that they have a lot of similarities genetically and otherwise to humans. Although I don't know how much of that they knew back in the earlier part of the century when they very first started. Okay, so let's go into some of the stories about some of these attempts to try and teach language to some of these primates. And the first one, the earliest one, is about a chimpanzee named, it kind of looks like it would be Gua, but I think because it's Cuban and Shane just looked this up, so that would be why (laughs) I'm thinking that it might actually be pronounced Hua. Yeah. So if we pronounce this wrong, please correct us. We're fine with that. Yeah. So let's go back in time before apes were taught sign language all the way back to the 1930s. Okay, so this chimpanzee was brought to Florida from Cuba, so brought to the United States. For some reason, a couple named Luella and Winthrop Kellogg, not that Kellogg. Yeah, not not the cereal Kellogg. Not the cereal Kellogg, not quite yet. Were able to obtain Hua and brought Hua into their home where they raised Hua like a child as the brother of their 10-month-old son. So that's kind of interesting. They're going to raise a chimpanzee with their kid. Luella and Winthrop are such 1930s names. Oh my God, dude. They were very clearly born in the late 1800s. (laughs) They couldn't have been born anywhere else. Yeah. (laughs) They are very, very seriously, those are Depression era names. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. But they were interested in seeing if they could raise a chimpanzee around a human as a human, and if it would result in the chimpanzee developing any human-like, even thinking like a human, uh, any of those traits or habits. They wanted to see if it would develop language or any human habits as a result. Right. And initially, who I did develop relatively on par with their son. So some of the similar milestones, uh, their son's name was Donald, who even exceeded some of Donald's skills in some areas such as dexterity and even some basic puzzle solving things. However, they noted that whereas their son Donald would recognize people by their faces, Hua seemed to only recognize other people from their smells and or from their familiar clothing. Could you imagine the conversations they have had to had with Donald when Donald wasn't doing what he's supposed to, they'd be like, the chimp can do it. <laughs> it's like, you need to figure out this puzzle. The chimp can do it, you know? Like, oh no, our son's not even as smart as a primate. I would love to see Donald Kellogg's case study. Yeah. Like, I want to see his story. So, furthermore, when Donald started picking up language, who simply did not. And it makes sense, right? For the yeah. faculties and all that. Instead, in March of 1932, Hua was returned to the primate colony that he had originally been a part of. Some reports claim that Donald had begun imitating more of Hua's behavior, specifically his language, and were concerned that Donald was regressing in his language development. Right. So it appeared that although Hua did pick up some milestones you might expect to see in a child who was a, you know around a year, less than a year old, and going on toward two and three and whatnot. I don't think he was actually there for very long, but what they were concerned about was that their son, Donald, who was more or less developing at a normal pace, then started to make those primate sounds instead of language that he had been developing. And although this wasn't actually confirmed, the speculation was they basically observed their son doing this, making that sound and they're like nope we're done with this experiment it is over goodbye brother monkey yeah goodbye brother monkey and yeah and send him back so okay well that wasn't it for trying to teach primates language otherwise this episode would be very short the next one was another chimpanzee named vicky and there was this other pair of ambitious researchers keith and Catherine Hayes, and they tried a similar strategy, and this was in the 1940s and 50s. This was also from Orange Park Primate Laboratory in Florida, and the couple treated their chimp very much like a human again, and specifically with the intention of trying to foster vocal human language in Vicky. They really wanted to get those vocal utterances, and so they went so far as to even use basic speech therapy, and they would manually manipulate Vicky's mouth and lips and jaw to try and approximate those vocal human words in English and reportedly got something like mama and then later papa cup and up. Uh, That seems like a stretch. 
Yeah, and I did find a recording online. I was really curious because in the 1940s and 50s, you know, recording technology was clearly around at that point. People were making movies. People had been making audio recordings for a while at that point. It was not unreasonable to suspect that there would be some recording. And I found a video. I'm not sure if it was the best video. And I was thinking of including it here, but there was a lot of narration over top of it, and there also just wasn't that much to hear. And the parts where it sounded like they were actually playing the tape of this chimpanzee, Vicky, making those sounds. And again, the four words that she apparently learned were mama, papa, cup, and up. So a lot of p sounds. Well, when I heard that recording, basically what I heard for papa was p, p, or p, 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 p. And there's a lot of hard P sounds. Cup was pretty similar. You're like, P-p-p-p. or, and then mom was like, P-p-p-p. so it was, it was sort of an ASMR thing going on. So I hope that didn't freak anybody out, but <laughs> yeah, that was, that was very ASMR. Yeah. It, it, there was just some kind of hard consonant sounds and it sounded, I guess you kind of had an approximation of those sounds in there, but it would be a far cry from if you'd heard this in any other setting and think, oh, yeah, they're definitely trying to say mama right now. You know, it you'd have to be listening for it and thinking that's what you were trying to hear. Right. It's a little bit of a stretch. So unfortunately, Vicky died of viral meningitis, so they couldn't continue forward. They weren't able to do any additional experimentation on this because the subject passed away. Yeah, maybe she was on her way to be a great Shakespearean thespian, but... It was cut off in the prime, the prime of lime. Oh, I'm wondering what Shakespearean, like what Hamlet quotes could be spoken from a chimpanzee's perspective. Yeah, with all consonants. <laughs> it's all consonants and just referencing bananas all the time. Now, as some people who are listening to this may have already figured out, one important factor that was getting in the way for the potential for success on these projects was that primates simply lack the vocal apparatus that they need to make the same sounds that humans do. Their voice boxes are higher in their throats, their tongues are thinner, they lack the same amount of types of vocal cords that we have, if you want to call them that. They simply lack the structures that are needed to produce sounds that would then allow them to approximate human speech. So instead, if we wanted to unlock the potential for human language and primates and possibly other species, we needed to do so by communicating in a way that they were actually physically capable of doing, which makes sense, right? Yeah. If a species cannot literally physically do the thing that we're trying to get them to do, there's got to be a, an alternative. Yeah. I mean, it, it is sort of similar to saying like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get this human to hold their breath underwater for four hours. I'm like, no, you are not. <laughs> you literally cannot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, humans can train themselves to hold their breath for a very long time, but not anywhere approximating even an hour, let alone four hours. Right. So this brings us to the, uh, the case study of Washoe, right? Yep. So Washoe was one of the most famous communicative primates and was a chimpanzee. So kind of staying in line with that theme, right? We're going to use chimpanzees for all this. Yeah, and named Washoe because of the county in which she was raised, which incidentally is where I am recording from in Nevada. Oh, interesting. So it's great that we uh, tie everything back. Synchronicity, my friend. Yeah. Pure coincidence. I did not move here for Washoe. Uh, maybe that's not what i heard (laughs) so washa was credited as the first non-human to use sign language and washa was raised at the university of nevada reno by alan and beatrix gardner these names are so old-fashioned right so after being brought to the united states in about the late 1960s ish this couple the gardeners raised washa almost like a human and again presumably to create the context of the sort of quote-unquote human experience if you will to really facilitate the likelihood that this primate would develop some language and some languaging abilities, right? That means that they dressed Washoe in human clothes. They gave Washoe a trailer to live in that had a bed with sheets. There was a couch in this trailer. There were drawers, a kitchen. They would feed Washoe human food. Washoe had a toothbrush and would actually brush her teeth and generally treated Washoe as a human child, albeit a human child that had a hearing impairment. Right. That makes sense. So reportedly, Washoe learned 130 to 150 signs, which is actually pretty impressive. That's more signs than I know right now. 350 signs actually were the the upper limit of what they had reported. That's fine. I, I misspoke. Okay. So 130 to 350. That's quite a few. Washoe had an adopted baby as well that she either taught to sign or else the young chimpanzee learned it from observation. 
they basically gave Washoe a baby and the baby started signing, but it wasn't clear if Washoe taught the baby or if the baby just observed the sign or if they taught the baby, it just wasn't clear. A few more chimpanzees also learned some signs that they reported used to communicate with one another. So it was reported that these other chimpanzees were using similar signs and communicating back and forth. Right. So this really seemed to demonstrate that not only did they have the capacity to pick up some signs, but that they did so with meaning and intention such that they passed it on and could communicate with one another. One of the most notable stories that you'll hear about Washoe was how she managed to combine signs to produce new descriptive language. So specifically, when she saw this like metal coffee thermos, which would be very of the times in the 1960s, and Washoe signed metal cup drink. Or when she saw a swan and she signed water and bird together. So didn't have a sign for swan, didn't have a sign for thermos, but signed those things around it. Now, Washoe did die in 2007. And interestingly, apparently when she was dying, did not sign anything, didn't wave goodbye, didn't make any signs whatsoever. So just something to note that Washoe is another one that has since passed away. However, her adopted son whose name was Lulis or Lulis maybe, is actually still alive. He just turned 41 this year, but he's still alive in captivity. So perhaps you can go visit Lulis and sign something to him. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Is Lulis in Washoe? No, I think they both moved to a rescue or some kind of primate center in Seattle, I want to say. I didn't actually follow the story too much further than how many signs that Washoe had picked up. But no, I don't think that either of them are still here in in Nevada. I think they've gone elsewhere. More temperate climates. (laughs) Exactly. So then this brings us to probably, we could probably make the argument that this one is the most famous. I think so. Yeah, probably. And probably the saddest video that I've ever seen is this gorilla with Robin Williams. I actually did not watch that video. Oh, it's just so sad. It was. It all came out right after a whole lot of stuff. So anyway, we're talking about Coco. Yeah. Oh, Coco. So Coco is the freest gorilla in the world. <laughs> was born on the on a warm summer day, July fourth, American Independence Day, right? In 1971, at a San Francisco zoo, where a female Western lowland gorilla named Hanabiko. Yep. So that was Coco's original name. Yep. Canabico means fireworks child, but it was kind of a strange name. So people who do not speak the language or even just kind of like that word itself is kind of odd for people to say. So they decided to shorten it to Coco. And that's how you got Coco. And especially in like American English, we like one or two syllable names for the most part. And if it's longer than that, we'll shorten it to one or two syllables. <laughs> We're too busy to say long names. Exactly. Like Shane's real full name is actually Shankrenmeister. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just a mouthful. We don't we don't bother with that. <laughs> yeah, it's just so much easier to say Shane. <laughs> One syllable, nice and easy, soft consonants. It's good. <laughs> All right. So, an animal trainer, also sometimes referred to as a handler, and then also I saw called a caregiver or an instructor, whatever. Her name was Francine Patterson, and Patterson reportedly spoke early and often to Coco and also taught her American Sign Language, although she called it Gorilla Sign Language, so GSL. And apparently, despite being born on the 4th of July in the United States, she wasn't an American gorilla because it wasn't American Sign Language as Gorilla Sign Language. But I'm Oh, sh- yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. <laughs> Dad jokes. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, Patterson reported that Coco understood up to 2,000 spoken English words and then could understand or maybe even perform more more than a thousand signs. So that's quite a jump up from what we were seeing with Washoe. So, and just to kind of tackle that, you know, I think that's impressive for any non-human animal. Yeah, that's a lot of words. That's a lot of language for a non-human animal who does not generally have the capacity to speak the language. Yeah, exactly. But we're going to get to the controversy around that later. It was at least generally accepted and agreed that Coco didn't really use grammar or syntax, although her language was said to be about as sophisticated as a young child. So she could communicate with a young human child who had no speech delays or was it typically developing, you could say, or or however you wanted to say that. She was about on par with that. There will be a lot of disagreement that we'll elaborate on, but that was one thing that most people could agree on was that there wasn't very much grammar and syntax and that there was some demonstration of what looked like language but not very sophisticated. So 
There were numerous studies done on Coco to determine the extent to which she was able to communicate effectively and how intelligent she was. She was like kind of the center of a lot of research around this. Yeah, and of course, if you want to make something famous, you want to make it cute. Well, you probably want to make it sexy, but in this case, that wasn't probably going to work very well, so cute was the route to go. And so one of the things that Coco was famous for was that she raised some kittens that she had as pets. And so they had given her some kittens and she sort of took care of them. And while adorable as that might be, this also was important because especially for those researchers and for other people who were interested in this, this symbolically represented this idea of sort of animal husbandry, right? One of those characteristic features of the early development in human civilization was those domesticating or taking care of or sort of recruiting other species to be a part of your living space for whatever reason you might have them there. So Coco is really interesting and definitely an advancement from all the stuff that we've seen already. Yes, and will be one of the most important when we go into describing some more of the controversy. And so we have one more story. There are multiple primates that we could be talking about, but we've got one more important one before we really start to dive into the, the nuances of what was going on with these animals. And so to stick with our theme, we've only picked the chimps that spoke with the best names. So this one <laughs> is Nim Chimpsky, which is so good. I love that so much. The anarchist gorilla. <laughs> Herbert Terrace wanted to try his hand at teaching language to primates and wanted to have more experimental rigor to his experiments compared to these other studies. So he obtained a chimpanzee named Nim Chimpsky, named after the famed linguist and political activist Noam Chomsky. Right. And he he was specifically inspired, if you will, by Washoe. And I read some accounts that he was skeptical. I read some other ones that said that he thought he could do it better. Whatever it was, Washoe was an important figure there. So similarly to Washoe and Coco, he raised Nim very much like a human child. Now, I did see some criticisms of his work where they were saying they didn't treat him like a real child. They didn't really raise him in the environment that was similar. There was two sterile and sort of experimental, but I actually saw some pictures of his living environment and saw some pictures of Nim Chimsky. Very cute, by the way, but they had him <laughs> dressed up. They had him in like a house environment. So I'm not exactly sure that there was a lot of merit to that criticism. Maybe it wasn't like as homey and comfortable as the other one, but if it's like the difference between having your own kitchenette and like thousand count Egyptian cotton sheets and like that's the thing that's going to give you language then we've got some other questions to ask here in our research anyway and one of the most important things they did with Nim Chimsky is they actually had him debate B.F. Skinner on the origin of language so that was a really interesting piece <laughs> he wrote this whole paper about how language was innate and and they had this whole debate about it it was really interesting yeah exactly I'm just kidding that didn't really happen no it did not <laughs> <laughs> so Nim reportedly learned up to 125 signs right which is kind of on par with where we were at with washo yeah but ultimately the researchers regarded their attempts to teach language as a it was essentially a failure with Terra specifically noting that quote for the moment our detailed investigation suggests that an ape's language learning is severely restricted apes can learn many isolated symbols as can dogs horses and other non-human species but they show no unequivocal evidence of mastering conversational, semantic, or syntactic organization of language, end quote. Yeah, I mean, instead, the chimpanzee had learned to make several gestures when he clearly wanted something. They sort of referred to this in the write-up as him begging for whatever it was he wanted, but really it was just a sort of request. It was just a, it'd be something akin to the chimpanzee thinking like, I'm hungry, and when I do this thing with my hands, I get food rather than the chimp understanding that I need to communicate with my caregivers here that I'm hungry so they need to feed me. There was no indication that there was a lot of intentionality there. It was just sort of like, I know when I do this thing with my hands, then I get food. So I'm going to do that thing with my hands because I get unrestricted access to food. That's pretty cool. And that seems to be as detailed as it sort of got. The 125 signs was a little bit on the low end relative to what we saw with Washoe, but that is, as you mentioned, right in the range of what was confirmed for signs that Washoe had. So it's possible that was fairly similar. But yeah, as you said, the researchers ultimately concluded that their attempts were a failure here. Which I think is probably a good place to bring us into the controversies around all this, right? Dun, dun, dun. All right. So let's start by saying that we are not trying to discredit the movements to be more empathetic towards primates. I think as two people who do not eat meat, it's 
probably important for us to recognize as well. And we aren't trying to suggest that those researchers did anything deliberately misleading. However, there are certain important questions that are raised by the legacy of these projects. There are certain things that we want to know, and we have to be a little bit skeptical about this. That's why we're here. Yeah, and I mean... I want to be sympathetic too. to like there are people who have used these examples to try and champion their cause of furthering animal activism and animal rights and humane treatment of animals. And I want to be in support of all that. And I don't want to have to lie or pretend in order to do it. So I don't want to try and discredit those movements who are are actively trying to support well-being of animals and acknowledge that maybe using these examples isn't the best way to do that because they were sort of claiming, well, look at how complex of an emotional language repertoire these animals can develop. We're really uncovering how cognitively similar to humans that they are. And while that's not really what we're up for debate here, it's just like what really happened in those in those studies that we were talking about in these experiments, it, it raises a lot of questions, right? And first, where are all of the primate language research laboratories? I've tried to look and one of the articles I was reading said that there weren't any and I thought, well, maybe there are some and they're just kind of under the radar. I couldn't find any. Now, granted, I wasn't actually touring the country looking for any, but, you know, I was just trying to look through resources on the internet to find if there were any left. And I just, I didn't see anyone on there. So if a robust protocol for teaching language to primates had been successful, then someone would have expanded on this, right? You would think so. I would assume so. There would be a whole extensive body of research around this. I mean, at the very least, those people who are out there trying to defend animal welfare would have been like, we're going to pick this up and absolutely run with this because then we can have these animals advocate on their own behalf, right? And how cool would that be? That would be so emotionally powerful and moving for people. Instead, we have not one single degree program, not one independently living communicative primate, not one research site dedicated to this topic. There's there's nothing that exists out there that you can find. The interest in time has basically disappeared since its heyday in the 1960s and 70s that people were putting toward these projects. But if this had been successful, then where did they go? Why wouldn't someone be running with this, at least in some capacity, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which brings us to the second point, which is, If this was as successful as they said it was, and that we are recording all the words and all the language that these these primates are using, where is all of the video recorded evidence of these phenomena, right? So let's think about this for a minute. Like you brought this up maybe in the 1930s when Mr. and Mrs. Kellogg were eating hardtack and they were whatever was going on back then. You know, they obviously the recording equipment wasn't readily available, but in the 40s and 50s and 60s, as we started getting further along, there is plenty. And then coming up to Coco, Coco died in 2018. So all of Coco's evidence and all the language around that is fairly recent. So somebody could have easily recorded a lot of the language that they're talking about and captured every word and every sign and all the stuff with a cell phone, let alone actual recording equipment. Right. It would have been pretty convenient to do so. I was just sorry. I was just having the note thinking about the other research paradigms that sort of blossomed and then never really went anywhere, even though they were tremendously successful, like the internet and whatever happened to that thing, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny, funny how that works out. Just, just Peter's out. (laughs) That's right. Anyway. (laughs) So like kind of going back to the point, like, you know, Lulis is still alive right now. Yeah. Why are there so few recordings? Why don't we have enough evidence? If there is the type of evidence that is being suggested here, then there should be more video evidence to kind of debunk all the debunkers, right? Right. Because there are some recordings. There are are actually, there's a handful of them, but the ones that do exist seem to weaken rather than strengthen the argument that these primates were actually communicating in a meaningful way. So, I mean, somebody, if you want to go out there and and meet with Lulis and do a really good demonstration of this communication. Like, I think that'd be really cool. It doesn't seem to be out there and we definitely have the technology to capture it if it was. And I think that goes back. There's another example. There is a video out there with an ape named Allie in which viewers, shrewd viewers noticed that 92% of Allie signs were repeats of signs that had first been modeled by the quote teacher, right? So the sign is displayed. Then the ape Allie, 
does the same sign that was literally just displayed. So 92% of the communication was modeled previously. So the ape was more or less just copying what the teacher was doing. And I definitely heard Ape Alley and was thinking of like a street that was just filled with apes <laughs> <laughs> or like a place in town where you go to hang out with apes. <laughs> you know, depending on how it was regulated, I might do that. <laughs> there you go. A third question to ask about this is what was really happening with these primates clearly something was going on but we need to know a little bit more about what that was now going back to terrace he essentially claimed and demonstrated that the primates were not using their signs in a communicative way of course the gardeners vehemently disagreed with him but upon further scrutiny of the video footage of washoe Nim, Jimsky, and others, researchers kind of essentially had to side with Terrace. Yeah, I mean, there was just not substantial evidence to say otherwise. You know, and I, I always go back to that phrase, um, with extraordinary claims, you it requires extraordinary evidence, right? And there's just not extraordinary evidence to support what the other researchers were saying. Terrace was right. I believe that's attributed to Carl Sagan. Uh, yeah, I'll take that. I like Carl Sagan. He's a nice guy. I could be wrong. He seems fine. It could be someone like a hundred years older than that or thousands, whatever. But I think it's attributed to Carl Sagan. I'll take that. I'll take that. So there's an example of a bonobo named Kanzi who could reportedly understand hundreds of complex commands. However, upon reviewing the video, a researcher named Dr. Clive Wynn noticed that their method for scoring correct responses to commands was, quote, unreasonably generous. Yeah. <laughs> He reported that they often had to repeat the instructions to the bonobo multiple times, and then if he even got part of it correct, such as choosing the correct item but performing the incorrect action, that that was scored as a correct response. After correcting for these false positives, Wynn concluded that Kanzi was correct less than 30% of the time, so wasn't very accurate at all. Yeah, I can't imagine if your employer was telling you to do something, had to tell you 12 or 15 times to do it, and then you only did half of it correctly, how happy they'd be with that. And they're just like, yeah, that was 100% correct. You got it, buddy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're like, like, here's your full raise. It's like, no, you didn't do any of your job. Right. And not that, you know, they were hiring Kanzi for any serious jobs, but just that they're reporting that Kanzi could follow all these complex demands. But then you watch it and they're like, well, you had to say it eight times. And then he only did like one thing. So, I mean, of the complex demand that you asked him to do, he didn't very very little of that command and especially if these were multiple choice type responses 30 percent is about where you'd expect him to be for just sort of guessing what he was supposed to do right so not super accurate skeptics have also pointed out with coco for example that the only recordings that do exist are those in which coco communicated with her handler patterson and no one else there are not recordings of coco independently engaging in some kind of sign conversation with another person furthermore coco did not initiate signs she only responded to specific cues from patterson terrace pointed out that in a famous pbs special that aired specifically on coco didn't like projected on coco but they they were featuring coco <laughs> specifically a hundred percent of the signs that coco made on that special were in response to a specific cue from patterson in addition patterson would have to interpret or explain quote-unquote what coco meant when she was signing rather than coco's signs being able to be understood and interpreted independently sort of on their own merit if that makes sense yeah so they weren't independent and they weren't functional right yeah so the coco would only sign to patterson would only resign in response to patterson and then patterson would see whatever coco was signing and say like oh this is what she's trying to say rather than just saying this is what she said or someone else being able to look at what coco signed and saying i see what coco said it was always seemed to be patterson interpreting for coco presumably because there was not really anything there. Oh, this sounds so, so reminiscent of facilitated communication. It, it hurts. Uh huh. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. Okay. So in 1998, there was an AOL live chat, which is the most dated thing I've ever heard. In my <laughs> right. Life. That's clearly 1998. <laughs> and at no other time in history was this an option. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's a, an AOL live chat with Coco during which people would ask Coco questions and Coco would sign something fairly nonsensical or not even fairly nonsensical, absolutely nonsensical. Yeah. And Patterson would interpret, quote, what Coco meant. So Patterson would actually take the sign and say, what Coco actually means is this. Right. There's one question specifically asking Coco what kind of animal she'd want as a friend and then provided three options of which Coco chose one. To several questions, Coco signed for candy or juice, although it was never relevant to the question. Right. So basically, they would ask Coco a question. Coco would make random signs, most of the time just going like, juice, candy? And <laughs> and then otherwise, Patterson was trying to impose meaning on whatever it was that Coco was signing. And the only one that seemed like it was a real response was when they asked if they gave her three options, say, would you want this, this, this as a friend? And then Coco signed one of those three things, which could be interpreted as just imitating. Right. Or it could have been something that's like super relevant, like kitten, which is a sign that maybe Coco signs very often. Yeah, it was actually dog was the one that oh, that she chose. The opposite. So <laughs> the opposite. That's right. That's that's a fun exercise. What is the opposite of a kitten? <laughs> a big old dog. Great. So essentially, critics pointed out that if you closely look at the signing of the, that these primates were doing, it starts to become abundantly, embarrassingly clear that they're not doing nearly as much as we believed. Take, for example, the water bird from Washoe, right? It's likely that Washoe was simply labeling two things that she had had a sign for, water and bird. So, and just combine those together. Rather than trying to say, like, there's this thing over there. I don't know what it's called. So I'm going to just give you two signs. Washoe is just looking around going like, when I make gestures, then they, they tell me good job. And one thing to point out with Washoe specifically is that the gardeners were, they noted that trying to arbitrarily reward language with food reinforcers and very basic sort of operant procedures, if you will, going back to the Skinner box type things, that that actually seemed to interrupt Washoe's language acquisition because they were concerned that Washoe was instead learning, I just signed to get food, whereas they wanted those words to have meaning relevant to the things that Washoe was interacting with, which is a legitimate concern and one that would definitely have been, I think, pointed out by behaviorists had they bothered to consult any, that when we use language, we don't use language and then someone feeds us a food pellet. No behaviorists have ever made the argument that that's how language works. It's that we engage with these complex interactions with those things around us in specific cultural ways, which we'll get to in a little in a moment. But anyway, it does seem to be the case that Washa would just sort of sign things and would really just kind of label things and mostly was like, all right, when I've seen that before, I do this thing with my hands. And when I see that thing, I do this thing with my hands. And that was maybe as complex as it actually got. Yeah, that makes sense. So again, returning to these videos, there were many instances in which upon reviewing the video footage, a few things started to become pretty noticeable to those people who were discerning. One, the signs were cued by a particular setup from the handlers almost every single time. This included not just those television appearances. As someone who's critical of this, I might think, yeah, they were definitely signing and you guys are just being jerks. Actually, when they looked at those recordings of them in their environments, in their home, in their comfortable place where they were learning to sign, and those videos where those primates lived and were trained, that was supposed to be their best performances and still primarily included cues from their caregivers or their instructors, whatever you want to call them, rather than them being spontaneous signs and or them never really initiating those conversations. Two, the signs tend to almost always lack organization and syntactical coherence. They were often just a rapid presentation of random signs that the handlers would then interpret what that was supposed to mean. So they were very frequently out of order. Sometimes they would ask them questions and they would sign three things that if you rearrange those three things had one meaning, but if you arrange them a different way, had a completely different meaning. And then the, the handler would, or the trainer, whatever, would just interpret it to mean whatever made the most sense in the context that they were in. But you don't actually know if the chimpanzee or the ape or whatever had any idea that that's what they were actually doing, what would just happen is like they'd sign a bunch of stuff and then things would happen and they could do the signs. And that was about it. Three, 
The researchers really seemed to only ever pay attention to the closest approximation of what they were looking for and ignored all other irrelevant signing, of which there was a tremendous amount. And again, this is all coming from this video footage of them, even in their training environments. They're just sort of making all kinds of gestures all the time, and the their trainers are just sort of clinging on to, that's the thing I want to hold on to, that's the one that's important right there, right? Yeah. And four, and finally... The signs, if you look at them, are really sloppy, so much so that it was really difficult for unbiased viewers to consistently code what they saw. I mean, they were very gross approximations of the signs that they're supposed to be making and could have often been confused for different signs, especially when you start getting into those hundreds and even thousands of signs range. It becomes really difficult to distinguish the various signs from one another. And this seems like they may have just been doing some very basic gestures. Some of them maybe not even signs at all. We're just sort of them moving their hands around as part of a normal moving around. So those are some things that people have sort of noticed in the videos as being potentially, not even potentially, pretty severely problematic to interpreting the utility and meaningfulness of their communication. Right. So I guess what it boils down to is, unfortunately, under scientific scrutiny, the answer is clearly and pretty unequivocally, right? Yeah. Or whatever word you want to use there, that we just aren't seeing what we wanted to be seeing. We want to see the animals have language. We're not seeing that, and there's nothing that's really demonstrating that. Right. So the skeptics have asked and have pointed out more or less, you know, what was really going on in these situations? Well, there was a story that we published earlier this year. One of the fun skits that we've ever had, I'm, I'm pretty proud of, talking about the horse that could math, right? In which Ryan adopted a very fun German accent. And the whole point of this was talking about Clever Hans and the effect of Clever Hans, where Hans was essentially learning, had learned from his trainer to attend to very subtle cues from his trainer how to respond. And Hans was tapping his foot to do like math problems and whatnot. Well, what seems to be happening for at least some of these instances for some of these primates is that they were essentially learning very subtle cues that they would make responses to. And that goes back to, again, the fact that almost all of their signs that we saw were in response to something that their trainer or handler had done and were not initiated independently. And so it was probably the case a lot of the time that those people were unknowingly cueing specific responses from those primates that they were working with rather than them actually asking a question and receiving a meaningful answer. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? If you look at it in that context, it looks like that's exactly what was happening. Right. Another thing that was kind of going on is there might be a little bit of self-deception, right? Like they wanted to believe so badly that something was happening that they kind of tricked themselves into seeing it, right? So you want to believe that this chimp can talk to you. You want to believe that this baby (laughs) that you're raising with your baby can communicate with you. And at the end of the day, you're just tricking yourself into believing something that just is simply not happening. Right. And then just thinking about the fact that these are people who often spent weeks, months, and years of exposure around these animals where what probably happened for a lot of them is that the smallest hint of a victory in teaching these signs led to this heightened sensitivity to anything that the chimpanzee or the primate did. So like they would sign something or they could maybe be interpreted. What they said had some particular meaning and they were just clinging to whatever they possibly could because they were around it. So, so much. They had a very, very high threshold of sensitivity to this is a thing that I've seen. So I'm going to interpret it this way because that's the thing that makes the most sense given what I want to see. So it all this sort of combines in this way. But if you just got to, if you got to imagine those people who they have are so close to the situation, they can't step back and see it with unbiased eyes. Like they are inescapably biased in their interpretation of this because they're just around it constantly, which on the one hand does give them the familiarity to maybe look for things that might really be happening. But on the other hand, and because this hasn't been replicated hasn't been shown and has not resulted in any line of fruitful research was probably them just becoming sensitive to things that weren't really there and they're just so invested in it they want that to happen so badly right so they'll find every little bit to say like yeah it worked and you know part of it too is the signing that they actually engaged in lacked some of the most or one of the most critical features of language which is that language is arbitrary right right the sounds and symbols that we use are convenient and culturally shaped over generations but otherwise does not depend on any concrete feature of a verbal exchange 
Right. As we're sitting here talking to you now, you can hear the way that we have vibrated the air coming through your speakers in such a way that you have hopefully learned something new today, or at least experienced some new amount of knowledge about the subject. And you could therefore go and do something with the information that you've been given to us. But none of that depends on anything tangible about the things that we've said. You didn't have to see a video. I didn't have to manipulate your hands. None of the words that I'm saying actually corresponds to any topographical similarity to the things about which we are talking. The words are arbitrary. Their shapes, their sounds, their cadence, all of the stuff is arbitrary, but it's meaningful inside of our culture, right? And that's just not something that was ever observed with these primates. And what's interesting about that too, is that if you look at people who do communicate via sign, their signs are arbitrary and yet meaningful. They use these gestures to communicate in a way that are very complex and contextually situated, but that allow them to be nuanced and fully expressed in their communication. Whereas with these primates, there was just not even the faintest glimmer that that's what was happening. Which I think is just... I think that's probably one of the most important takeaways of all of this, right? Yeah, I think so. So, unfortunately, we'll likely never say language in animals the way that humans do language. And that's not to mean that it's not important or that we shouldn't look for ways to communicate with animals. Just that we really need to be careful when we're doing these things that we're not just fooling ourselves into believing what we want to believe, that we're not just looking for confirmation of things that we hope are true, right? It's just, we've got to be very careful and sensitive to those as we are doing those research. And like, I hope that people do continue to investigate ways to be more and more, I guess, in tune with, if you will, or in touch with animals to be more communicative for us to just learn more about whatever language they might be using, if any. I think all that would be really cool. It's just that we need to be very, I guess, skeptical and also very smart about it as we proceed and that we don't just allow ourselves to get wrapped up in our wishful thinking. I think that's an excellent point. It's important to study communication, but don't confuse it with a gorilla speaking English. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's good. Okay, so a quick take-home summary here. I think, you know, we essentially talked about four major examples in which they tried to teach language in some capacity to various primates. We had Hua and Vicky, as well as Washo and Nimchimsky and Coco. So that's five. And then there were some others that we mentioned. There was there was actually six total that I saw that were some kind of primate that were described as having demonstrated language in some capacity. And again, those really didn't go very far. Yeah. And I think the take home point that I would really kind of glean from this is that at the end of the day, are, are we talking about animal learning? For sure. There is learning happening, right? Yeah. There are behaviors that are being shaped and behaviors that are being reinforced. Very good point. But to call it language is a stretch. We could definitely say that they did teach them something. There was something interesting that was that was done inside of these experiments, but really it does seem like probably what was happening most of the time was this sort of self-deception, clever Hans effect where they just got super sensitive to particular signs. And when we really try and break down those signs, there is no substance anymore. Right. And I think that's probably a good place to end. One final thing I'll say real quick is just that if this was more robust, if you really believe that we did teach these animals like good communicative signing skills, why has nobody else done this? Where did this research go? Why isn't this published? And why isn't there good like recording evidence of this having happened? Right. Those are legitimate questions because scientists would want to understand more about the universe around them. Right. And if this is a phenomenon that is under-researched, then we should probably spend some more time with it. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. That's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got too. Well, let's wrap up with a quick listener mail then. <coughs> this email comes from Michael and he he wrote a list. And so it, this was fairly long. So I, I shortened it a little bit. So I apologize, Michael, if this feels a little truncated, I tried to get your main point across, but do it relatively succinctly. So number one, he says, thanks so much. It is awesome. You guys doing the research and putting out trails, which anyone who is interested in psychology can follow. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate the kind words. Even more important. It is indeed consumable. It is complicated stuff made available with a language that anyone can pick up next to attention to appropriate jargon. I think it's so important that concepts of psychology are presented that way that a big range of people can potentially be exposed to it. It is helpful for us humans to be aware of this because it will have value to us in some way or another. Cool. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate all the kind words in there. 
note number two. He says, uh, note on episode 110. I think that was diagnosing. Yep, you're right. Diagnosing mental health disorders. Perfect. Thank you. He says, I'm a disability care worker in a MCS in mental health and well-being done at the University of Edinburgh. They used a constructionist approach to mental health and diving right into it, they looked very critically at manuals such as the DSM or ICD. Not that there is much of an alternative out there, but their main question was, how can we take that stuff serious if it varies across time and space? And he mentions over here that diagnoses change over time. He mentions autism and how it used to be Asperger's, but now you either have an autism diagnosis or nothing at all. He goes on to say, we get different interests that could shift the discourse. A well-known example could be methylphenidate or Ritalin, producing companies benefiting enormously when there's an increase in ADHD diagnoses from psychiatrists and whatnot. And another one is how politicians blame mass shootings on mental health. So these manuals then get politicized and monetized and that sort of thing. He says, I'm not suggesting there is a valid alternative out there. I'm mainly highlighting that the trust we put in those manuals should come with a grain of salt. Yeah, I'd say generally I agree with that. Almost done here. It says, in very basic terms, the medical model considers there is a standard human being and some just don't fulfill all the criteria for that standard, the, the disabled. The social model looks at how our society does not manage to equally cater for all its members. Governments need to use the medical one to determine the level of support, which is nicely addressed in our episode. Thank you. We care workers, though, need to use the social model to identify barriers to integration and how to overcome them, communication aids, wheelchairs, etc. I'm trying to show that we not government, not psychiatrist people should be made aware that those manuals are tools with a function. Anyway, thanks for your work. Warm wishes, Michael. Okay. A lot to unpack there, but mostly I thought, you know, he made some really good points in talking about how there are different ways to look at these issues and considerations around those different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of using it as a tool in the toolbox is important, but understanding the limitations of that tool too. Like I'm not going to go use the screwdriver when I need a hammer, right? Yeah. Being able to recognize that like it's there, it's available, but it's not an end all be all. And it also, those tools themselves don't account for context, which is what you're talking about. Those social models, the social models are absolutely all about the context, which is equally as important, if not more important. Right. So anyway, thanks again, Michael, for writing in. I thought that was a really useful contribution that you made in that discussion. And I do appreciate it. We didn't, as you mentioned, we didn't touch as much on the sort of social way of looking at those mental health disorders, but it is useful, I think, to have that in mind as well. So if anyone would like to share their job with us or talk more about things like signing to chimpanzees or whatnot, then please reach out to us. We really enjoy hearing from people. We'd like to welcome all of our new Patreon members that have recently joined us they'll be getting the uncut version of this episode which has some of us trying to pronounce things correctly and some other fun little tidbits <laughs> <laughs> and us trying to tell jokes that some of which will get cut but anyway that's all i got Do you have anything else shane no i think that's it all right thank you so much for listening this is abraham and this is shane we're out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.